why don't you take out your Bibles? You're going, Bibles, what? What are we doing here? I thought it was on the screens. Nope, not this week. If you do not have a Bible with you, grab a Bible under the seat in front of you. We are not in a blended portion of this series uh, because we have a small portion in Matthew and the rest of it is in John. So anytime I can get us back into the physical Bibles, I want to make sure to do so. Do you realize that next week is the last part in the two and a half year series that we've been doing? So I don't know how many of you, let me just ask real quick. How many of you have been here longer than two and a half years? All right, praise the Lord. Now, here's a big joke between uh, Pastor Jason and his wife, Kelly, and I. They only know this series. As long as they have attended this church, we've been in this series, all right? So they know no other teaching I've ever done outside of the Being Jesus series. So there are actually other books in the Bible, and there's other things I'd love to talk about. So we are wrapping it all up next week. So where we're at in the series is that Jesus has a couple meetings left with the guys, with his team of men and women disciples. And he has a few things he needs to get across to them before he steps out of the earth. He's going to send in the Holy Spirit. We're going to be more than taken care of. But he personally wants to tell them their mandate for the future. So we've broken that into the two final pieces of the series. One is his final visits and personal conversations. And next week we will talk about the Great Commission. So I would love for you to join us and then roll into the brand new series where we launch the whole new theme for 2016. And we'll be able to let you know all the new series and books that we'll be going through. All right, pretty exciting. So let's dive into this. Take out the handout sheet that was given to you at the front door. I want to draw your attention to the fill in the blank. Would you agree with me that life is like a roller coaster, a lot of ups and downs? Would you agree with me that if you would have designed out your life, you wouldn't have designed it like this? Would you agree with me that when you pictured it in the future, you never imagined that you would be in this place? Have you ever considered the fact that you go, Lord, do you have any idea what you're doing? It sure doesn't seem like we're moving forward. It seems like you're playing darts with a blindfold. It seems like it's all over the map, man. Every time I want to advance forward and I'm thinking, Lord, you're going to do this. Oh, you gifted me for this. Oh, you want me to walk in this way. I'm always wrong. So Lord, it seems so random. I know you must know what you're doing. The big thing is I don't know what you're doing. Do you ever feel that way? I want you to know that the callings of God upon your life are huge. His purposes and plans for you are incredibly significant, and he knows what he's doing. He knows how to get you where he needs you to be to do what you need to do and what he built you to do. And no, you don't know the pathway. The fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you is this. If Jesus told you, you wouldn't want to go. If Jesus told you, you wouldn't want to go. That's why he's not telling you. Let's think about it from Abraham's perspective, yeah? Hey, Abraham, I need you to leave your comfort zone and go somewhere. All right, well, how's it going to go? Well, let me tell you. 
So pretty much you're going to kind of go out and you're going to bring your nephew and there's going to be all kinds of conflict. He's going to end up in a really bad place. You're going to have to go rescue him. But anyway, that's not important. So then you're going to go along and then um, you're going to think you're going to have a kid because I said you're going to be a great nation. But really, you're not going to have a kid. Then 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 anyway, when you're finally stressed out, you're actually going to violate my whole premise. You're then going to have a kid I didn't ask you to have. He's going to lead one group of people. Then finally, when you're 99, I'm going to give you the kid that you thought you had. The only problem is I'm going to ask you to kill that kid. And so if you lay him on the altar, you're ready to kill him. You're all in. And I'm going to go, oh, no, that's not really what I meant. And then I bring in an animal, and then you're going to sacrifice the animal. So after that, as you're traveling around, there's going to be times when you're going to be so scared you're going to die that you actually lie, shove your wife out in front of you so that she could possibly die, and you're going to defend your yourself you're going to pass that on to your kids so do you want to go what do you think the answer is going to be absolutely not so what did he tell him abraham i want you to leave your place and i want you to go somewhere that's it okay great and he didn't tell him any other details i just need you to follow me and i'll give you some good news I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to bless the world through you. But boy, it's going to be complicated. So I just want to encourage you. God has dramatic, wonderful plans for you. How do we know that? Is that merely hyperbole? Is that me just kind of blowing smoke or is that legit? Well, let me tell you this. You wouldn't be here if it didn't matter. You would not exist if God was not going to use you for his glory. Every single one of us have infinite value because we are being utilized in God's plan. And I know it's not how you want it. I know it is not clear. I know it feels like you're taking two steps forward and 15 steps backwards. I know that's how it feels. But God is good at what he does and he knows how to get you there. Let's go ahead and turn into Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, that is uh, around page 835, and the Bible's under the seat in front of you. Matthew 28, 16. Matthew 28, 16, just a short story. It's very bizarre, actually. It looks normal, but there's a lot we need to understand, so we're going to spend a little bit of time on just a few lines. Matthew 28, verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. In other words, the date and the meeting point that they had. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. All right, here's why this is so complicated. We don't know what's going on. As a matter of fact, scholars are split out as to who is even at the scene. Here's why. Is it really just the 11? If it's really just the 11, it's a complicated story. Is, is it possible that when Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 that there was a time when Jesus met with 500 people at one time, is that this? And that Matthew's only highlighting that the 11 disciples were there? Here's why it matters. It says, and when they saw him, the risen Lord, they worshiped him. Yay, that's good. And some doubted. Boo, that's bad. Hold up. If it's just the 11, are we really going through this a third time? Jesus hasn't been alive 
that long. He's already visited them. He already talked with the women. He already talked with Mary. He already saw Peter. He already showed up in a locked room, went through the whole, hey, I'm alive. Thomas wasn't there, didn't believe it. He shows up again, goes through the whole thing of I'm alive. You can touch my hands. You can touch my side. Really, are we still having doubt after all that? And it's only been a couple weeks. That would be bizarre. So scholars are split. Does this mean that actually there were 500 there, and even though the 11 worshipped him, the 500 had their learning curve to go through? Maybe they're wondering, whoa, the Lord's alive, and I knew they were talking about it, but I never thought I'd see him for myself, and and some of them doubted. Is that what it was? Because that's valid. But if so, then Matthew is really weird about it. He doesn't mention them at all. He only mentions the 11. If it's just the 11, what were they doubting? It does not say that they had a settled unbelief. It said that they were confused. So here's what it may well mean. It may mean that although they knew the Lord was risen, they weren't so sure that it was him this time. Huh. Right after this, he gives them the Great Commission. So he's talking back and forth with them. How do you get confused? How do you get doubted when the Lord Jesus Christ risen is giving you a message? Well, it brings up a point I would like to make. I think too often we look back at the Bible and we assume that just because it's written in black and white that they lived it out in clear HD. That is not correct. I want you to understand that just as messy as it is today, it was messy back then. It's always been messy. I know that we look at it and we go, man, this one person was sick. Now they're all better. And then we look and we go, well, they were doubting and then they were back. And then the nation was under control and they got delivered. And we look at these and it looks clean cut and nice and crisp. And man, it's right, right there for you. But they didn't write down any of the messy details. We are still the church. We are the continuing acts of the apostles. Do you understand that? We are the living, breathing Bible of today. So all that is going on now is very similar to how it went on then. I would say to you that all the stuff that happened in the Bible, there was a million opinions on how it would have went down. I think that some looked at that and they go, that was clearly a miracle. Some didn't have that same perspective. Some didn't get to see what they saw. In the same way today, we'll say, this is a miracle, this is medical. Hold on. Well, which is it? Is it miracle or medical? Is it both? And, and I think that too often we have these expectations that unless something is clean cut and clear, that it's not real. I disagree. I think that everything I see in Scripture, living it must have been horrifically messy. It's written in the Bible that when Moses came back from being with God, something was different about him, right? And then we found out that it was the glory of the Lord because it was written that way. I don't think everybody thought it was the glory of the Lord. As a matter of fact, if they all thought it was the glory of the Lord, why were they so scared of him? Why did he have to block it? Right? I think that when we talk about things like Pentecost, I think it was absolutely messy and crazy. I don't think it would be normal to say, I think you're all drunk if it was neat and clean, but that's exactly what they thought was going on. In other words, I want you to reset your expectations 
that what you walk through and what you witness is so much different than the Bible. I really think that it was real life then and it's real life now. And so as they engage with the risen Lord, there was a whole bunch of opinions about what was going on. And some were locked in and worshiping and some were having a really hard time. That's just real life. Let's take a look at John chapter 21. John chapter 21, verse 1. Go to the right in your Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You'll get there. John 21, verse 1. It says, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. Do you know where that is? Well, you might know it by its other name, the Sea of Galilee, right? Oh, okay, we all get that one. That's easy. Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Galilee, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, that's one. Thomas called the twin, that's two. Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, that's three. The sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, four and five. And two of the others of his disciples were together. Now, whether those were the 11, I would guess there's two of them. Why John doesn't mention their names, I don't know. That sounds kind of rude to me, but whatever. He's like, oh, yeah, those other two guys. There's seven of the 11 together. Or maybe there was two from the bigger group of disciples. We don't know. But look at this, verse 3. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they all said, yeah, we're going to go too. That's leadership. Here's what I mean. The definition of leadership that I, that I stole from John Maxwell, one of the only things I stole from John Maxwell, is leadership is influence, nothing more, nothing less. If someone's following you, you're a leader. I think that's an excellent definition. Peter has a way that when he talks, everybody does what he does. Now, it doesn't, it doesn't matter why. It could have been that he was one of the older members of the team. It could have been that he had more life experience. It could have been that he was more wealthy. It could have been that he was more successful. It could have been his personality. We don't know why, but when he says, I'm going fishing, everybody goes fishing. Well, that's intriguing. If he's going to go fishing, is that a good thing or a bad thing? You're like, dude, it's fishing. Why are you worried about it? Well, because Jesus told them to leave all that behind and to follow him. So is it a bad thing they're going back to fishing? Didn't he say, hey, guys, you were fishermen. Now you're in the ministry. And it says they left all that and they moved forward with him. Right? So is this bad? Some commentators say yes. They consider this a backslide. I disagree. I think it's just practical. Because here's how real life goes. You have a calling from God. God is going to meet with you and he's going to give you divine appointments and he's going to do incredible things through you, but he doesn't do it every day. What are you going to do on the other days? It's probably called real life. Probably called regular life. When you're sitting around and you still are part of a family that has a family fishing outfit, they have all the gear, it's right there, you're hungry and you need to make a living until Jesus shows up with new plans. What are you supposed to do? Go fishing. Now, the reason why I point this out is because many of us have fallen into this trap of I'm going to sit on my couch and pray for God's will for my life. How about you go do something because God can catch up with you and steer you? 
But if you are just sitting in one place behind locked doors, you're always assuming Jesus is just going to show up. What if he said already a bunch of challenges and commands? What if he said, you're the salt and light. I need you to go out and be salt and light. I will give you directives along the way, but I need you to go live life. I don't need you to just sit around hiding in a hole somewhere, praying for something big to happen. How about you just do what I told you to do last time? How about you just live out as a Christian every day? Then I'll come in and I'll give you direction and I'll steer you and move you. These guys decide to go fishing because it's the next logical step and they happen to meet Jesus there. They did not go fishing to meet Jesus. Jesus happened to show up at their fishing day. When you go to work every day, you don't go to work to meet Jesus per se, but Jesus meets you at work. You just go and do what you do and you influence where you influence and you change lives where you change lives. All of that, if God never asked you to do anything more, that's more than enough. Because you are advancing the kingdom of God. It is rising glory to God. Just because you don't see it's significant doesn't mean it's not significant. So they decided to go fishing and Jesus said, that's a great idea. I'll meet you there. This is how it went. So they went out and they got into the boat. Notice it does not say a boat. The boat probably means it's Peter's boat. Once again, as much as he left it behind as an occupation, the family business still ran. They didn't just sell all the gear. It's still their stuff. Peter was with his brother in business as a fisherman, and they were partners with who? James and John. It was a two-family business team. All right, here we go. Then they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. That's a drag. Working all night long. Back then, this whole fishing thing, it was not, wait, roll it in. That's not it. This was throw out the nets, which are not heavy until they touch the water, and then you have to drag them back in and scoop them out of the water, and then you throw them again, and you scoop, and you throw them again. How about doing that all night long? Well, that's exhausting. Fishermen were a tough crew because they had to be. They didn't make a ton of money. It was hard work. So they're out there fishing all night long. Why would you fish at night? Does that even make any sense? Is this something odd? No, it's very normal. It's very practical. Why? Well, I don't know. Quick show of hands. How many of you are fishermen? Fisherwomen. Anybody out there? All right. You guys got it. Y'all know when fish bite, right? They only bite two times, right? They bite in the morning and they bite in the evening. Other than that, they could care less that you exist, right? Well, in the same way, the fishing patterns would swim in towards shore in the evening. They're looking for things that would drop down off the coast, all right? So you fish at night just for that reason, but here's another reason. They're doing it for business. Imagine this. You need to sell fish fresh in the morning time. If you're working in the morning time, you've got to somehow pack it for the next morning and you don't have any refrigeration how's that going to work wouldn't it make sense to fish all night long and have fresh fish to lay out in the morning for everyone to come and buy all right so they're fishing at night as normal they're throwing out their nets they're exhausted and they caught nothing just as day was breaking 
funny how Jesus waited for a full night of frustration to show up. Anybody feel like that? Yeah, all right. Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Huh, that's weird. Don't you think they'd have their Jesus radar on? I mean, he's popped up a couple different times when they were least expecting it. If, I, if it were me, I would think everybody's Jesus, right? I mean, it didn't even matter. Little kid, I'm like, are you Jesus? He's like, no, what's wrong with you? Every woman I meet, are you Jesus? No, dude, quit looking at me like that, right? They had no idea. So Jesus calls out to them. They're about 100 yards offshore. Jesus calls out to them, little children. Now, I find that ironic because some of them are probably older than he is. He's only 33 years old. So let's say he grabs one of the other guys and they're 34. They're like, dude, why are you calling me a little kid? He's like, because I was here from the foundation of the world. So there you go. I'm older than you, right? I'm the uncaused cause. I'm the prime mover. I created this whole world. I can call you whatever I want. At least that's how I would act if I was Jesus. <laughs> Aren't you glad I'm not Jesus? <laughs> Jesus said to him, hey, little kids, do you have any fish? He answered, no. He said to him, hey, how about casting the net on the right side of the boat? Then you'll find some. Okay, to me, that's irritating. <laughs> really? The right side? We've been on the left side all day. And we all know that fish can't get from the left side to the right side. Hey, don't we all realize fishies swim? Your boat's not that big. So if fishy's on the left and he swims under your boat, he's on the, the right. There you go. So it's not like there's this big wall of dividing line between the left and the right. And they're like, we never even thought to go on the right. I mean, to me, I would just get so fresh, especially after a whole night of not doing anything. Now, praise the Lord, they had the humility to try it out. They don't know it's Jesus. They're not trying to be obedient to the Lord. They just think some dude may well have spotted from the shore the movement of a fish school. And so they're like, whatever, dude. I didn't, it didn't work our way, so let's go ahead and try it. So they throw out on the right side of the boat, and what happens? So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. You're going to find out it's 153 big fish with the weight of the nets being wet was probably 300 pounds. That's a massive catch. They can't even haul it in from their vantage point on the small craft. Hmm. What do you think this is all about? I think it's all about obedience, and I think that God asks us to do dumb stuff to test our faith. I think that God's way doesn't always make sense, but that's kind of the point. I think that if he keeps giving you brilliant ideas, then you keep thinking it's you. The minute he gives you a dumb idea, you know it's him. You understand what I'm saying? Because you're like, I would have never came up with that. I would have never had a dumb idea like that. Oh, I see. Okay. So when he gives you an idea and he said, will you do it? And think about all the silly looking plans God has used in the Bible. Hey, march around Jericho and then just yell. Is that not dumb? Hey, uh, so what we're going to do here, Gideon, is we're going to reduce your whole team down to 300. And then you're going to smash jars and yell. And then I'll kill the enemy. That sounds like a dumb plan. And how about we do this one? Joshua, while you're fighting, no matter how good of a fighter you are, when Moses raises his hands, you win. 
when he puts them down, you lose. Dumb plan. What was the point? God was teaching all the way through and saying, stop relying on your own wisdom. This isn't about you. I have never relied on you for results. What I rely on you for is obedience. Definition of success, obedience. Nothing more, nothing less. I don't care what you make. I don't care how successful you look in the world's eyes. I only care whether or not you are obedient to the Lord. Why? Because the most successful man to ever walk this earth was Jesus Christ. As a vantage point of a human, he did not accomplish very much, but he did every single thing the father asked him to do. He carried out everything he was designed to do in a perfect fashion, and there was no one more successful than Jesus Christ. Amen? So we duplicate that. Our job is to be obedient immediately, exactly obedient. That's our goal. That's how our lives matter. Well, sometimes God has that tested and he asks you to do things that are silly and you don't get it. And he tells you to do it anyway. So sure enough, they tried it their way all night long, caught nothing. They tried it his way and shocker, it really worked out. That disciple whom Jesus loved, who's that? John, therefore said to Peter, it's the Lord. So Simon Peter, when he heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, threw himself into the sea to swim to shore. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they are not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. How did John know it was the Lord? Because this is the second time this miracle has happened. In Luke chapter 5, at the beginning of their ministry, Jesus borrowed Peter's boat to teach. When they were done, he gives them a miraculous catch and they end up pulling it in and the nets begin to break. There's so much quantity. John goes, I was there. Nobody does a miracle like this. That's my Lord. I didn't recognize his voice. I didn't recognize what he looks like, but I know his miracles. I know what he does. That is my Jesus. And just like typical fashion, you have Peter and John together. Why these two got partnered up, I have no idea. They're so different. I would imagine Peter is one of the older group, and I would suggest that John is the youngest in the entire team. Maybe that's why they got paired up. But Peter is the impulsive. John is the thinker. Remember when they went to the tomb, John kept going, and I ran faster than Peter, and I ran faster than Peter, and I ran faster than Peter. But when he got there, he looked in and began to think about it. Peter blew right past him and ran inside the tomb. Peter is a doer. John is the thinker. So right here, Peter never notices anything. So John calls it out. That's Jesus. What? Ah! And he jumps in. You're like, dude, why are you going? Right now, why does he put on clothes to swim? That seems a little counterintuitive, right? It says he puts on his tunic because here's how it works. If you're out there doing hard work, you're out in the water, you're only with dudes surrounded by guys all the time. You work in a speedo. That's kind of how it works. They had a loincloth. They would go all the way down to a loincloth because they don't want to have to keep drying their stuff. They're getting wet the entire time. So they're hauling stuff in, they're sweating and everything else. They want to be able to jump in the water, jump out, clean off, cool off. They don't want a lot of clothes on. So Peter is down in his skivvies, yeah? 
Now all of a sudden he's like, the Lord's there. I got to get in the water. Give me something to wear. Why would you put something on to jump in the water? Well, he wasn't jumping in in a sleeping bag, right? Where he's like, oh, I can't swim. Oh, no. He was putting on a lightweight tunic. Why? Because Jewish law says that a greeting, an official greeting is a religious activity and you must be clothed for it. So he was grown up as a good Jewish boy and he knew the rules. I'm going to go say hi to the rabbi and greet him. I need to have my clothes on. So he puts his clothes on, jumps in the water and makes it to the shore. All right. It says this. When they got out on land, verse 9, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. Did you see it? No. Well, let's go through it slower. So Jesus is making breakfast, which is cool right there. But he does not have enough. That's interesting. He's there going, oh, that's my breakfast. Get your hands off that. Right? How about you bring some of the fish that you caught? Why did he not have more? He just made fish out of thin air. Why wouldn't you just make a whole bunch of it? I mean, if they're coming in and they're exhausted, why don't you have a whole huge meal for eight dudes, those seven, and you? Why wouldn't you have plenty for everybody? Why would he be so light on the food? Because he allows them to bring something to the table. This is an incredible part of how God works with us. He lets us partner with him. Does he need to? No. Where did they get the fish in the first place? He gave it to him. Hey, can you bring some of the fish that I just gave you so that you can feel like you contributed? <laughs> right? Isn't that all ministry? Hey, how about you do the preaching that I just gave you? And then you reap the harvest I'm doing. And then you feel like you're important. Listen, nothing we do is of eternal value unless God is in it. I mean, we're not doing the salvations. We're not doing the transformation. We're not doing any of that stuff. It's always God. But how sweet of him to put his God stuff in your pocket so then you spend it and think you were part of it. That's super nice. Right? I mean, he's just saying, come on, kids, how about you come in and be a part of this? Yay, look at our contribution. Yay. Right? He knows. He knows that we want to have a part of it or we don't own it. But he also knows that only he does God stuff. So he gives us his God stuff so that we can be a part of it. I love that. Here's the other thing that you might have missed. What kind of fire is it? Charcoal fire, does that matter? Well, maybe, maybe not. Here's what's intriguing. The last time that it's recorded was in the courtyard where Peter denied Jesus. Well, that's weird. Maybe they're all charcoal fires. I don't think so because charcoal fires, the reason why it was mentioned in Peter's denial was they don't give off very much light and Peter was trying to hide. Well, now Peter gets out of the water on land and runs up and there's Jesus in a charcoal fire. Boy, that's not supposed to ring any bells. That's not supposed to take you back a little bit. Hey, I remember when there was a charcoal fire and there was Jesus. I denied him. Okay, that's embarrassing. It says, so Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Does that matter? 
the last time the nets tore. So why does it say there was no torn net? I think it's this. God graces what God calls you to do. If God asks you to do something, he'll give you the grace to carry it through and your net won't tear. If you spend all your time doing things he never asked you to do, you're going to destroy yourself and your nets are going to rip apart. Hmm. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Well, then why mention it? In all the other stories, they never said, no one asked if it was the Lord. What? Because he looked different. And they all knew there was a weirdness about the fact that they're going, this is not the same Jesus we keep hanging out with. Now, he normally morphs his form, but his glorified body is different. They may have been going, hey, I'm not used to shiny Jesus. I don't know what it was. I don't know how he looked different. Maybe it was the vibrant, alive, joy-filled, resurrected Lord. I don't know if it was, man, when I see him, I'm getting hints of him being the rider on the white horse. I don't know what it was, but it was unsettling. Now, none of them, it was unsettling, but they still knew it was him. So they didn't want to be awkward and go, it is you, right, Lord? And you see it, yeah, right? That would have been weird. So nobody even asked, but they had to write it down going, man, he looks so different. All right. They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to him, and so were the fish. This is now the third time that Jesus revealed to the disciples as a group after he was raised from the dead. When they finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Hey, how about you and John go for, with a, uh, on a walk with me on the shore's edge? So they're going to go for a walk. He will kind of have Peter in front, and as normal, John will defer to Peter, and he'll back up. So even though he's super close to the Lord, he kind of walks behind them. They're going to have a personal conversation, kind of. It is also a public conversation because John's going to write down what they talk about. That means they were talking loud enough for him to hear, and that's very important. So they go for a walk, and here's how it went. Simon, Jesus said, son of John, do you agape me more than these? Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. You know that I have strong affection for you. He said to him, all right, well, then feed my little ones. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you agape me? Do you love me with all that you have? And Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. You know that I have strong affection for you. And he said to him, all right, then shepherd and care for my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you phileo me? Do you have strong affection for me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I have strong affection for you. And Jesus said to him, all right, then take care of my sheep. What is this all about? Now, is it really all about the differences in words? Is it really agape versus phileo and all this? No, I don't think it is. I've taught in the past all that nuance and we've really dug into it. And I used to think that it was more important than I think it is today. Here's why. In the Gospel of John, he uses those words interchangeably. He uses them synonymously. He'll say the love that the father has for the son is agape. Then next time he mentions it, it's phileo. 
Then he'll say the love that God has for mankind is agape. The next time he says it, it's phileo. He will keep flipping the terms back and forth. So is that significant? Maybe, but I don't think so. What's more significant is that he said it three times. That really freaked Peter out. Because you can imagine how awkward that conversation is. Hey, Peter, do you love me? Yes, sir, I do with all that I have. Awesome. I need you to do something for me. All right. What's that? Take care of the little ones. Yep. Absolutely, sir. Hey, Peter, do you love me? Kind of weird. You asked me it again, but sure I do. You better believe it. All right. Then I need you to take care of the sheep. Yes, sir. Hey, Peter, do you love me? Lord, this is weird. The whole thing is weird. You're freaking me out because you already know everything. And if you know everything, are you asking me because you're trying to point out that I don't? Is that what you're trying to do? And imagine how much right then Peter's mind would just attack him. I mean, how much can the devil play on this? Dude, you denied him three times. You have no business being in ministry. You have no business. Listen, he tells you he loves you. Clearly, you have demonstrated you don't love him. How much uh, self-condemnation would have poured in at that moment? And yet Jesus is going, listen, buddy, you're taking this where I didn't tell you to take it. I asked you, do you love me three times? I have a different reason for that. You went into self-condemnation. Stop it. That's not what I asked you. I said, do you love me? Yes, then do some work for me. Do you love me? Yes, then do some work for me. Do you love me? Yes, and do some work for me. You know why I'm asking you, Peter? Because now publicly... You were already rebuked for three denials. I just publicly had you reaffirm your obedience and love for me in public in front of everyone. John saw it. He's going to write it down. And no one's allowed to mess with you from here forward. If anyone ever comes to you and go, why are we still following this Yahoo? John, you're supposed to step in and say, I heard the Lord. And he reaffirmed Peter three times. Here's the other thing. Don't you imagine that Peter, with that self-condemnation problem that I imagine that he has, don't you think when he goes on about his day later on, is going to doubt whether or not he should be in ministry? But he doesn't get to doubt anymore. Why? Because God just gave him three mandates to do it. Here's what Jesus just did. He took the burden off of him. Hey, Peter, you're not here because you're the cleanest. You're not here because you're the most pure. You are not here because you're the best. You're not here because you're the most gifted. You're here because I told you to be here. I don't care what the enemy says. I don't care what you say about you. What I'm telling you is I called you, period. And I actually commanded you to do it. So we don't have to play the game of should I be here. I told you to be here three times. You understand how powerful this is? He's already worked out the private stuff with Peter. This is a public thing. When there is public failure, there needs to be public restoration. You understand what I'm saying? So that the rest of the people would buy into him again. All right. Verse 18. Listen up. This is deep. Jesus said to Peter, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Pause. What in the world does that mean? Could that not be more cryptic? You're like, really, Lord? I have no idea what you're talking about. And we would not know and we'd be debating about it today if John wouldn't have put this in the parentheses next. This, he said, to show by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. Thank goodness that's in there. I didn't even know what he was talking about. 
he's talking about how he was going to get martyred. That's brutal. What did he just say? Well, according to tradition, Peter was murdered as a martyr underneath Nero's reign. Uh, Nero was a Roman emperor. Uh, He was killed, it says, in Rome. Now, tradition has, and whether or not it's accurate or not, I don't know, but it does match. What type of death do you spread your arms out for? Crucifixion. Well, tradition says not only was he crucified, but he said, I'm not worthy to be crucified in the same manner of my Lord. Crucify me upside down. Now, you've got to understand how hardcore that is. Crucifixion is already horrific. To do it upside down and have all the blood rush to your head and die that way, I don't even understand that type of bravery. But somehow, some way, Peter went through with it, if that is accurate. Here's the point. Peter, you're going to die a brutal death. I need you to know that. Look at the next line. After saying this, he said to him, what? Follow me. That in Greek means keep following me. Peter, I just gave you the end. Are you still going to follow me? Because here's the deal, boy. You've been in and out and up and down. You've been kind of all over the place. I need you to be solid. So I'm going to tell you where we're headed. It's going to go and you're going to die. I don't need you to run away. It's your plan. So, Will you follow me and be consistent and lead my team? I need that from you. Yes, Lord. Look at verse 2. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, following them, right? So he's, he can hear all of this. The one who had also leaned back against Jesus during the Last Supper and had said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw John, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about that man? pause why why did he say that was it curiosity hey lord while we're talking about futuristic dyings so how's he gonna die this is interesting to me is that really why he asked so i'm gonna be crucified what about johnny right probably not was it comparison and competition lord if i'm going to have a brutal end what about that guy does he get to die too i mean is this how bad it's gonna go or Are you saying that he's going to get away with it and I'm not? Or did he ask out of concern? I wonder how much that them as partners with one being older, he took kind of a father figure role in John's life. If you tell me I'm going to get murdered and I watch over my buddy here, please tell me he's not going to get hurt, right? Why do you think he asked? I don't know. But why do you ask? Because you're asking this question all the time. How do I know that? Lord, why me? Why not them? What about them? How come they got that? How come they're the ones that are smarter? How come they got more money? How come they're the ones that get the ministry? How come they get to do that role? How come not me? Why not me? Why not me? Why not me? Why are you asking that? Is it because you're curious? No. Is it because you're concerned for us? No. It's because you're comparing yourself. How did Jesus deal with whatever Peter was asking? Look at the next line. Jesus said to him, if it's my will that he remain even till I come back, what is that to you? You follow me. That's called a rebuke. That's called shut it down. We're not playing that game. I didn't talk about John. Look at me. Don't look at some. Look at me. Don't look at John. I'm talking to you. My, my role for John and my purpose and plans for John have nothing to do with you. Don't compare yourself to somebody else. You don't even know his real scenario. 
You don't know what his strengths and weaknesses are. You don't know what his blessings and difficulties are. Stop comparing yourself. It's not appropriate. So keep your eyes locked on me. You follow me and don't look at anybody else. What's interesting is how that got distorted. Verse 23. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was never going to die. What? Man, people are stupid. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not going to die. But if it's my will that he remains till I come back, what is that to you? Okay, that's John trying to shut down dumb things. That's John who's way older now. And he was the only one that wasn't martyred. He lived the longest and he lived a really long life for them. And here's John where everyone's watching everyone die around him. And they're like, dude, I bet you're like immortal. He's like, I'm not that old. Calm down. No, that's not what God said. He didn't say I'm immortal. He said, if I wanted him to be here till I come back, what is that to you? He was shutting Peter down. Stop the whole, I bet John's going to live forever. No, that's stupid. Look at how he closes verse 24. This is the disciple John who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things through a secretary. And we, the secretary and witnesses watching this, know that John's testimony is true. You know what's so cool about that? There's power in corporate testimony. When one person tells you you doubt it, when a whole group tells you it's harder, here's one of the reasons why it's fun to bring non-believing friends to church. When you're at work, you look like the odd one out. You look like you're the only one that believes in the boogeyman or the only one that believes in the invisible Smurf God. But when you bring them to church and they look around and they see a thousand of us sitting together and you go, look, I'm not the only one. As a matter of fact, here in my home, we're the majority. That's a nice feeling because then they have to come face to face with the witness of thousands. That's awesome. And then it says this. Now, there were many other things that Jesus did, not just said, but did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Why is that important? Because I grow very tired of this argument. Well, that's not in the Bible. It must not be legit. Hold up. The majority of all things are not in the Bible. The Bible is infallible. The Bible is not exhaustive. If you want to have an argument with me that something violates something in Scripture, we have a debate. If you say that's not in the Bible, that's ignorant. Chocolate's not in the Bible, and we know that's legit. There's so many arguments that go, well, that must not be real. That's not in the Bible. You really think that this is all that God has to say? You really think that this is all Jesus really did? Come on. This is a little tiny slice of all the things that Jesus did. John told you that twice in his book. He's like, guys, I'm only giving you a snippet. He was doing so much stuff. He was saying so much stuff. I only included the basics so you would come to life spiritually. But it was never meant to be an answer book for everything. The Bible is trustworthy and true. Everything needs to be matched against it, but it doesn't say everything. So be very careful of that argument. It's not in the Bible. I know it didn't need to be in the Bible. 
That doesn't mean it's not legit. All right? We good? Here's what I want to close with. The more we align our hearts with his and the more that we get mature in the Lord, the more that he can tell us. Why? Because there's certain things you can't tell the babies that you can tell the adults. There is a beautiful blessing to walking with the Lord faithfully over time. God can reveal more to you. There are certain things that a new believer cannot receive. There are certain things that an inconsistent believer will not be told. There are certain things that God cannot share with you if you're always on the edge of drama and bailing out. But if you are consistent and maturing in Him, He's able to release more and more revelation to you because you like what He likes. You are interested in what He does. You're building His kingdom, not yours. And you're beginning to align with His vision. I think that it's beautiful that God shares anything with us at all. But He does. Why? He doesn't want to keep secrets from us. He gives us what we can handle in knowledge. Sometimes He pushes the envelope. But I'll tell you this. Isn't it wonderful that we have a God who speaks to His children? Incredible. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You. Thank You for Your glorious kindness to minister to us today. Lord, we are not here because we deserve it. I certainly am not. And yet, Father, that You have commanded us to stand for You. You have told us that there are people around us who are hurting and need Your love. They need a kingdom blessing. They need to be with You. And we're the ones to give them a hug. God, we are here not because we are great, but because you are. We are here in doing your work and your ministry and speaking your gospel because it's what you told us to do. Thank you for your grace and your kindness. Right now, what we want to say is we want to align with your kingdom. We want to build what you are building. And right here, right now, Father, we want to say yes to your plans. So carry us forward, give us discernment, and speak loudly to us above the roar of the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.